Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning, Emmanuel Church. I'm really thankful today that uh, I'm able to come and uh, share God's word with you. Um, in fact, today I will be sharing uh, some of what I've learned in seminary with you. Uh, will be a good way to uh, for you to uh, have oversight over what I've been learning as well. Uh, it's too bad that I won't be seeing most of you face to face today. Um, won't be seeing your smiles and your laughs and you know. Uh, but I'll try my best to be engaging uh, as I look into the camera screen. <clears throat> so, uh, Pastor Evangel had been spending you know the past few weeks going through the first three chapters of Lamentations. I hope we all remember that. And Lamentations. Uh, as a reminder, is a, is a book containing five poetic prayers, uh, hence the five chapters, that recount the tragedies and honors, uh, sorry, the, the tragedies and horrors um, experienced by the Judean people as they were exiled by the Babylonians. And also it was a time after the destruction of their first temple in Jerusalem, uh, right around 600 years before Christ. Today we will recall that historical context and, and bring it to our context by studying the Apostle Peter's letter to Christians exiled in cities across Asia Minor. And uh, th that's today's Turkey. So I want us to just think of today's sermon as a, as a field trip, okay? Away from Lamentations for a little bit, take a breather, and a brief stop at an oasis. However, you know, like any good uh, uh, school field trip, you know, you can really only make the most out of it uh, if you paid attention during classwork, right? So, you know, it, otherwise you could be like, uh, you know, this geologist uh, or, or geology student out in the field and stumbling across this this biggest, greatest, you know, geological find in history only to toss it away, right? Had, having no idea what it is. Um, it may have looked just as, you know, uh, as, as normal as any other rock you find on the roadside. So let's just take a few minutes this morning to compare and contrast the circumstances between our context and the context of the original readers in both Lamentations and 1 Peter. So how do our circumstances compare? There's several ways we can look at it, several parallels that we can compare, but I'm just going to choose three this morning. So first, all of us are described to be in exile. We're exiled. This is characterized by the fact that we are under foreign rule, and I'll explain that in a little minute, living in a society where the culture is foreign to us, and where the people around us are against our God. So while Jews 600 years before Christ were under the Babylonian rule, where the people worship idols like Marduk, first century Christians were under Roman rule, and they worshipped uh, idols like Nike and Hermes. In both cases, they, are def you know, they deified and worshipped their kings and emperors, and for us today, you know, I think we learn from Ephesians 
um, I think it describes best that you know, the world we live in now is under the dark spiritual power and forces of evil in this heavenly realms that is drawing the world away from our God. And the current world may uh, have moved away from worshiping idols represented by statues, but perhaps uh, we're worshiping idols represented by images and brands. And many of them share the same names as some of the gods and goddesses I just mentioned. And uh, perhaps in addition to kings and emperors, we, we worship you know, economic giants or CEOs. Second parallel I uh, want us to look at is that all three groups are suffering uh, while in exile. In Lamentations, uh, it uses sad and dark images to express the suffering of Jewish people. Here are some examples. It describes Jerusalem as an enslaved woman who weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. It describes Judah as being under affliction and hard servitude. And it describes Zion as having her hands stretched out, but there is none to comfort her. Suffering. And for the first century Christians, we know, we know from many passages in Acts that you know, the first spread of the gospel throughout cities in uh, Asia Minor was met with hostility and violent oppositions. You know, these included political persecution and suffering from false accusations. How about Christians today? Christians today, I think depending on where you live in the world, uh, persecution can range from having lives and livelihood threatened by authorities to maybe being bullied and ostracized by society in general. The third parallel I want us to just keep in mind is that all three groups are given hope from God, that we have a reason to persevere. As dark and sad uh, as the book of Lamentations can be, it does contain sections that speak of the hope of restoration, which we will get uh, more to in chapter 5. In today's passage, uh, we will look at the hope that Christians, both in the first century and today, have while suffering and being in exile. So if you haven't already, please uh, grab your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We'll, today we'll be reading from uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 12 to 19. Allow me to read it. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, 
what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Is it normal, let me just ask you, is it normal for Christians to experience trials and sufferings? Or does it only happen when we do something wrong or we sin or do something foolish? Today, today's passage teaches Christians about, I think, four realities of our sufferings, four realities of Christian suffering. So I break them down into four topics. Suffering is a step forward for, pur- for our purification. Suffering is a reflection of our fellowship with Christ. Suffering is not all equal. And that we all suffer under God's judgment. So let's take a look at the first reality. The first reality is that suffering is a necessary step toward our purification. The suffering that is being referred to here in the passage uh, is translated as fiery trials that come to test you. To understand the meaning of this phrase, we turn to its previous use found in an earlier chapter. In chapter 1, we'll read from... Oops, next slide. Uh, We'll read from uh, chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in both passages, Peter talks about trials that come in the form of fire. In chapter 1 here, Peter is more explicit in explaining what this fire is for. It is there to test the genuineness of faith. In other words, how true and real someone's faith is in God. And then he illustrates this experience with the process of testing gold with fire. Well, I was was at a wedding last week. Uh, Some of you know uh, whose I'm referring to. And when I went up to the stage to take photos with the couples, uh, I don't know if you had this experience if you're at any, any wedding in Hong Kong, I couldn't help but notice the amount of sheen that's coming off of uh, their, uh, their outfits, you know, especially under the light on the stage. The bride, especially, was adorned with gold jewelry. Uh, it's, it's a gesture and sign of blessing in Chinese culture to give wedding couple uh, gold in, on their wedding day. It's a sign of wealth, but also a symbol of how their love can be as genuine and long-lasting as gold. Now, I used to own a gold coin, um, something, something that looks like this. Because I was told you know, uh, um, by older generations but, uh, in particular that it's a good investment to have you know, in case of rainy day. And you know, I've since had many rainy, sometimes even stormy days, so Alice and I you know, decided to sell it. And before then, we, we'd had no experience whatsoever about selling gold. Um, and after my wife had uh, brought the gold coin to a jewelry store, the storekeeper told her how much they would buy it for and then uh, asked if they could test whether it's real gold. 
Um, so they took the gold away uh, from the counter, and I assumed that my wife waited there awkwardly for a few minutes. Um, and then they came back. They came back not with a coin, but with this half-melted, mangled, half-coin, half-nugget thing. Um, what they did was they tested um, the coin by burning and melting it with intense flame to make sure the weight before burning and the weight after burning is equal, is the same, which means it's pure gold without impurities. Well, I wasn't there in person, but when I heard it, I was held back a little because I thought, well, that coin looked really nice. I, the design you know, and how they minted it must have had some value, but apparently to the, to the store, to the jewelry store, it didn't matter. The, the outside of the coin didn't matter to them. What mattered to them was the essence of the coin. Um, for us, we were glad that it was genuine gold and we sold it and went on, went on our way. Well, similarly, Peter is telling his readers in chapter 1, verse 6 to 7, that while it's true that trials that Christian experience can bring about this burning sensation, it can be unpleasant and even painful, it is ultimately there to test the genuineness or how true our faith is in Christ. So that on the day when even the purest gold would perish, our true faith would bring about praise, glory, and honor. In fact, Peter urges believers to not be surprised by the testing of the faith as though something strange were happening to them. Apart from knowing the trials that there is to test our faith, Peter reminds his readers of a second reality, a second reality relating to our sufferings. Suffering is, or rather, we suffer because we have fellowship with Christ. What does that mean? Let's take a look at verses 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The word used here is share, and it's translated from the Greek word koinonio. Some of you know this word because we used to have a small group called koinos, which means to have a share or to come into communion or fellowship. This idea that Christians share in Christ's suffering because he, he too suffered for us is repeated throughout 1 Peter. So let's take a look at other verses from um, the scripture in 1 Peter. Uh, first we look at chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So let's think for a moment about how Christ has suffered for us. He is God who committed no sin, but was made a little lower than the angels. He was despised and rejected by men, carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions. 
as Christians, we can sometimes have this tunnel vision, this tunnel vision where we only focus on the glory to come. We are solely waiting for the time when Jesus returns. Or in verse 13, we read, when his glory is revealed, that we can be glad and rejoice. However, our passage today reminds us that Christian identity, it's kind of like a package deal, right? It's like when you go into Welcome or Park and Shop and they bundle up, you know, maybe a bottle of hot sauce and a pack of sugar. It, it makes no sense sometimes there with their package deals. You know, it, it, it's total different flavors, but the deal is a deal. You know, you, if you want to take advantage of that special offer, that special price, you have to buy both at the same time. Likewise, if you want to share in Christ's glory when he returns, the Bible teaches us that we are to be prepared to suffer for the sake of righteousness, just as Christ did. Let's think about what it means to be a Christian for a moment. The term Christian used in 1 Peter means partisans of Christ, or one who has fellowship with Christ, which makes clear the meaning of what it means in verse 14, for the name of Christ. It describes a, person's, a person who represents Christ to others. Christian, this term, is, is likely to be a term of contempt, which means it wasn't a very good term to use back in the days, uh, by unbelievers rather than a self-identification by believers. Unbelievers in Roman and Jewish society back in, the, back in the days would have looked down on Christians. Now we have to understand that being a Christian, especially in the first century, meant that you would have stood out among your neighbors and society in general, and not for good reasons. Here are some examples of how um, a Christian would have stood out. Christians would have been seen as not respectful toward ancestral pagan customs of their surrounding culture, and their, their preaching of a new king of Jesus would have sounded like a revolution, which makes religious and political leaders very suspicious. Paul, as we read from Acts, Paul's successful preaching of the gospel at Ephesus uh, even provide a riot, you know, which was recorded in scripture. And Christians were also misunderstood and accused of being murderers for preaching uh, the Lord's Supper and using words like body and blood. And then calling each other brothers and sisters while being married also you know, created a suspicion of sexual immorality, which we know is not the case. But likewise in our context, so what, what are some of anti-social uh, activities that Christians may be accused of today? Um, some things I can think of is perhaps going, having to go to church for worship, you know, service on a Sunday morning or spending non-working hours uh, to attend Christian fellowship uh, is, is weird, it's odd, you know, instead of partying or, or taking, taking more sleep. Uh, being, uh, living in a highly capitalistic society like we are here, tithing is also seen to be something ridiculous to do. Why, why would you give 10% uh, of your, or your income to, to church? Perhaps even hanging out with the poor or ethnic mi minorities in the city to the point where you let your, your children or family members become friends may be an uncomfortable idea for some in our society. Teaching the idea of maintaining sexual purity according to the Bible may upset those who support the ideas of 
homosexuality or having extramarital sexual relationships. And having integrity at a workplace and letting colleagues perhaps even climb ahead of you generally are thought to be foolish. And all that said, I haven't even begun to list examples of our brothers and sisters around the world where they might have uh, where they might be experiencing circumstances that you know, may incur far more negative responses from their unbelieving neighbors. Now, regardless of the situation and circumstances, remember that our suffering is a sign of our fellowship with Christ. And as 1 Peter points out, those who take part in the suffering of Christ also will take part in his glory when it is revealed. So that was the second reality of our suffering, is that we share fellowship in Christ. The third reality I want us to look at and think about is that Christian suffering is not all equal. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's take a look at Scripture in verse 15 to 16. It says, But let none of you, suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here, Peter divides the suffering that Christians can experience into two types. And I say again, this is suffering that Christians can experience into two types. The suffering that comes from being a murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler, and the suffering that comes for being a Christian. Now, some of you may be confused. If I'm a Christian, why, why am I suddenly suffering as a Christian, and then why am I suffering not as a Christian? Aren't I always a Christian? Well, the takeaway here is that just because you identify as a Christian and, you're, and you are suffering, does not necessarily mean that you are suffering for Christ. All right, let me say that again. Just because you identify as a Christian and you're suffering does not necessarily mean that you are suffering for Christ. There have been a high-profile court case, uh, for some of you, if you remember, in Hong Kong a few years ago, when a politician and a high-rolling you know, high uh, real estate tycoon were both sentenced to jail for bribery. After the sentencing, the media called one of them a devout Christian. And you can, you can check any newspaper that comes up over and over again. Even the judge of the case, even the judge who sentenced the person to jail, said that he is a compassionate, sincere, and good man motivated by his Christian faith. Now, without posing any further judgment on, the, on his character, Let's just take a look at the fact. The fact that, that he is sentenced for punishment uh, to be in jail is not because that he is a Christian, even though he was one, but instead he suffers jail time because he engaged in bribery for his personal gain. So ask yourself this the next time you suffer. Is your suffering due to punishment of sin? Or are you suffering as a Christian? Suffering as a Christian means more than simply claiming Christ, but refers to a believer's action that reflects the moral stance 
laid out in 1 Peter chapter 1. So when you have time, go back and read that. But for today, I'm just going to refer to verse 17. Verse 17 says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So it's important to remember that as we suffer for Christ, we are to conduct in that, in that way. Fourth and uh, final reality I want us to think about today is that suffering, or when we talk about suffering, refers to the fact that we are all suffering under God's judgment. All. When I say all, I mean humankind regardless of you uh, being a Christian or not. Let's take a look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, given the context of the passage, the judgment here corresponds to trial and testing uh, that, becomes, that comes down uh, like a refiner's fire to uh, essentially burn away all that is unholy and against God. And only what is pure and holy will remain. Okay, so let, let me repeat that again. The judgment that is being referred here has to do with, with testing our genuine uh, genuineness of faith. And by saying that God is judging the world is to say that he's removing those who oppose him and those whose faith in him are hypocritical or not genuine. So we can refer again to earlier chapter in chapter 2, which we won't read today, um, as well as the learnings from the book of Ephesians that we've been uh, taking in last year, that the household of God being referred here is the church. He is referring to the church. And we know that the church is where God dwells, so that we are called to be holy and pure. And with that in mind, we would understand why judgment or testing of the faith begins with us at the church. It is so that we can be pure and holy, fit for God's dwelling. And if the church were called righteous before God, you know, because of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, are scarcely or barely saved? What will become of those who do not obey God by following Jesus? That's the question that Peter is posing. Now, Peter doesn't provide an answer to this question, but rather he meant it to be rhetorical. Peter is comforting believers here. Remember, this letter is to the believers to comfort them by helping them understand that the fiery trial they are um, or will be experiencing from God it's far less severe than what the unbelievers will experience. I don't think this passage speaks directly about the ultimate end of non-believers. There are other passages for that. But we know enough from Peter's illustration here that it won't be a pretty sight for non-believers. Now, while precious metal like gold and silver doesn't change color under intense fire for those who study chemistry, but a lot of uh, uh, imitation, I won't say fake, but you know, imitation gold jewelry are made of metals that will oxidize, which means when you burn, it will combine, uh, it'll have a reaction with oxygen. And what will happen is that the colors will turn dark, um, either black or green. 
So I'm going to share a story here. Some of you already know that my family went through some agonizing times a few months ago with my daughter's ear infection on her left ear. Um, don't be explicit about it, but when you see her, you can you know, take a peek and see that there's a little special spot on her left ear um, that if uh, we leave it unattended uh, for a prolonged period of time, it, it usually causes some clogging. And, and usually, you know, we would clean her fairly regularly and it's not a problem, but that time it, it was clogging so much that it got infected. And the infection got so bad it bloated like a balloon. Uh, and it got really painful for her. Uh, finally, we consulted uh, some doctors and um, they recommended that there needs to be a surgery that, uh, so that they can take, you know, do a slit and take out the pus. I, I, no pictures, don't, don't worry, I won't get graphic here. Um, you know, I, I, I don't like the idea of having her being put under, like having uh, a general anesthesia. But then finally the surgery was done and she was patched up and I, you know, uh, honestly thought that that purification process is done. But I was wrong. That was only the beginning of the agony we would experience as a family for the next month. We would soon realize that she would have to go back to the hospital every single day, at least for the next two weeks, well, but turns out to be a whole month. Um, to have her dressings changed. Now, for, for those who are doctors or paramedics, you, you know what that means. I did not know what that meant. Uh, I, I, I have to tell you, I was quite traumatized and still am when I'm thinking about it. Uh, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. No pictures, again. I'm not going to describe it for you. You just need to know that it was a very painful and shocking experience, especially for a seven-year-old. And I have to say, it's equally painful for the father who had to hold her down every day, and uh, sometimes it's Alice holding her down, and hear her scream on the top of her lungs. And as you have to look and see what's going on with her ear, oh! So why am I sharing this? It's painful as it is for me to say it. Well, my daughter's ear's infection is like this impurity, right? This impurity that... Uh, that we hope that the surgery and the changing of the dressing uh, would, would change. You know, that whole procedure is like this fiery trial that she had to endure, and, and that all remains at the end is hopefully a, a perfectly healthy ear. And this fiery trial, you know, this, this, this whole procedure may have been painful, but it far outweighs the consequences if, let's say, we were to leave it unresolved. And as painful as it was for my daughter to go through this procedure, I, as a father who had to call the shots, you know, knew it had to be done for her ear in order for her to be healed. And it would have been wrong and unloving of me to say, oh, because, because you, know, you don't want to do it and, and you're dreading about it, then fine, let's postpone it or cancel it. This whole ordeal made me see just a tiny glimpse of God's perspective, perhaps, that he knows what's best for us. And often that means that he wills for suffering in the flesh to happen to us so that our souls will be saved. It's a difficult idea to grasp that suffering is a gift, that suffering is good for us. But it is. And just like how my daughter trusted me throughout this process, though, you know, with much struggle, 
I admit that I am at times hesitant in trusting God's will to purify me. Is that how you feel about your suffering as well? Now this story will continue to remind me that it is better to trust in God and suffer through this fiery trial in the testing of my faith than it is to be found disobedient in the end and my name is blotted out from the book of life. As I was finishing up the sermon, I, I turned to my daughter. I, I wrote this and I turned to my daughter and asked her, do you remember, like, what do you remember from this incident? You know, I, I, I thought because this was such a traumatizing experience for me that it would be a traumatizing experience for her. But the answer surprised me. It, it, it literally surprised me. And I'm going to share that with you. She mentioned nothing about the pain or agony. And all she remembered was how we spent three days and two nights together at the hospital, just, just me and her, and how we drew her favorite characters on my tablet and played her favorite games you know, together on my phone. And like, I almost forgot about those things. This reminds me of, of Psalm 30, uh, verse 5. I'm going to read this to you. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. How wonderful. Though for a little while we may grieve by the various trials and pains, so that all remains is our genuine faith. And when there's nothing else to let us down or pull us back, then all that remains is rejoicing and honor and glory. In conclusion, Peter's exhortation to first century Christians dispersed across Asia Minor is to remind those who suffer as a Christian and not as a sinner to continue to do good and rejoice knowing that they are blessed by God who is the faithful judge purifying them for eternal glory with Christ. And so we see that suffering is a necessary step toward our purification. Yes, it is painful because it removes sin and other impurities from us. We suffer because we have fellowship with Christ. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we can follow in his footsteps. And third, not all sufferings are equal, brothers and sisters. Let us repent of the sins that cause us to suffer and let us not be ashamed when we suffer for righteous reasons. And fourth, Christians suffer because God's purifying fire comes first to the church. Again, it can be painful at times, but it is there to prepare us for eternal glory with Christ. And similar to the early Christians addressed in 1 Peter and the Judeans who first read the Lamentations, we too are spiritual exiles and we too are experiencing suffering and loss of varying degrees. There is no doubt about that. And just like them, our hope of restoration lies solely in our faithful creator whose spirit rests upon us because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. I hope today's message helped provide you with a framework to think about Christ, uh, suffering as a Christian. And for some of us, we are 
deep in our Christian walk and suffering for Christ is like breakfast or like a morning stroll. But for some of us, we may still be in that stage of surprise that comes with being, you know, a Christian and suffering, like how Peter uh, addresses his readers. We're perplexed by the type or amounts of suffering that comes with being a follower of Christ. Regardless of your circumstance, let's commit to process these sufferings together as a church through prayer. We may be called to suffer boldly for God, but please remember, we do not need to be bold-faced in light of suffering. Let me say that again. We may be called to suffer boldly for God, but when we are before God, we can be honest and genuine with our feelings. We don't have to put up a bold face in light of our suffering. As we return to Lamentations next week, we will once again see how we can bring all feelings of grief and questions about suffering directly to God through prayer. And if biblical writers can express them in public prayers, there is no shame for those of us who just need to cry out to God in our agony and despair. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord of all creation, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, mighty God, we come before you. You know, we're going to be singing a song where we're going to, we're actually going to sing that this fiery trial, this refining fire from you is a good thing. But deep in our hearts, many of us know that uh, it's a difficult, difficult prayer to pray. How can suffering be a good thing for us? God, we want to be honest with our feelings. At times of suffering, we just don't feel it. We don't know what will come out of it. But God, renew our faith. Renew our trust in you. Help us to walk in the Spirit and in Christ. Help us to see that you're walking alongside of us. And help us to see that that's all we will remember after this trial, that you have been with us. And that we come out more genuine. We come out more satisfied and true with our faith in you. So God, if any of us right now is suffering because we are a Christian, or that we're suffering because there are impurities in our life blocking us to be more faithful and more true in our following of you. Help us today to be able to express those things through prayer to you. May your word continue to enlighten and renew us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.